1: Hello and welcome to another episode of I way with Jamila Jamil. I hope this episode finds you well. I have loved reading all of your messages. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that you enjoyed Monroe's episode. She was just incredible, wasn't she? She's so inspiring and interesting and honest and eloquent and that voice oh I just love her and I'm so glad that so many of you do too now uh, it also really warms my heart when I get so many messages from people telling me that they are taking these episodes especially Monroe's episode back to their families to help their families understand their experience if they too are transitioning or have transitioned um or they' their They're sending them to their friends and family in order to just help them come on side to support trans and gender nonconforming people. And so I really thank Monroe for coming on to the podcast. And I thank you for sharing the word, because that is how that is definitely a form of activism and allyship. Just talking to your own so that the people who are marginalized don't have to. If we take care of that for them, then we are doing our job as allies. Um, This week, we are having a slight change of gear. I'm talking to a straight white male. Uh, He is an actor and an activist. And what I love so much about this episode is not just the man himself. I'm talking about Matt McGorry. You might know him from How to Get Away with Murder or Orange is the New Black. Um, But, well, I was so... thankful to him for was how much he opened up to me about his body image issues and he's been considered a sex symbol for a large portion of his career and yet has struggled for so long with eating disorders and now that he's bigger than he was before he talks me through how that has changed other people's attitudes towards him how that's changed his own relationship with his body the history of body image obsession and and how oppressive the system that created it is And I think that it's such an important issue because men don't feel like they are allowed to talk about their body image issues. It's something that we always naturally associate more so with women or maybe with some gay men. But with straight men, there is some sort of stigma and taboo about them admitting that they feel self-conscious. I guess there's a, maybe there's a fear of being considered vain or feminine for doing so. All the toxic masculinity bullshit. But this is definitely something that's on the rise. We are seeing a rise in all these weight gain, muscle gain products being sold. By the way, I'm currently working on uh, trying to create a bill. In Boston that would stop young people from being able to buy these muscle gain products because some of them contain very severely toxic metals and Viagra even they're putting Viagra in the bloody things that young people are taking young men are taking to build up their muscles, which is terrifying anyway. We're also seeing, because of social media, more and more men suffer from eating disorder issues and from body image issues. This is real and we can't ignore it. And we definitely, definitely cannot shame men out of being able to talk about it, talking about the pressure, talking about the expectations. You know, we've commodified every single inch of a woman's body. Now we have to worry. You know, the latest latest procedure I heard about was earlobe plasty. As if women don't have enough, to fucking worry about in the world. We now have to worry about whether or not our earlobes are attractive enough. Can you even believe someone, probably a man, I don't know for sure, but come on, decided that we should monetize women's fucking earlobes. So because they've run out of space on our bodies, they've shifted the focus to men. And it's everywhere, it's all over social media. So I'm so glad that Matt is talking to me, not only about body image, but also about allyship. He's sharing with me all of the things that he has educated himself on. We did record this before the pandemic and before this rise up of black lives matter and so that is why we don't touch on those subjects because he's a fierce advocate for you know around both and all things and all marginalized groups i strongly suggest that you check him out on social media and i really hope you enjoy this episode he's a really rare human being and the way he uses his platform is really really cool so enjoy the wonderful matt McGorry. McGorry, hello. Hello. How are you?
2: I'm wonderful. Thank you, Jamila Jamil. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. You have to be closer to the mic though. Okay, I understand. Otherwise it sounds like I've got a big ego and I'm Uh, trying to make myself louder.
2: I understand. I'm trying to shrink myself.
1: Oh yeah, Yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. Trying not to take up space in a brown woman's brown woman's room exactly (laughs) so uh, for those who don't know you are an actor you're an activist Uh, within your acting roles you play problematic white men
2: Mm -hmm.
1: how to get away with murder orange is the new black that's correct um so has that been part of what has guided you towards your activism i think 2014 is when you kind of really came out publicly within the space uh was it playing those roles that had any kind of impact on your decision to speak out and be a an ally,
2: you know, um, in some ways, I, I wish I could say that it was, but um, you know, I did Orange is the New Black for uh, a couple of years, and my sort of um, unawareness of privilege and, um, frankly, the racism and white supremacy in the criminal justice system was so deeply embedded that, um, in the entire time I was on the show, I did not understand the role that you know, that racism played in our uh, criminal justice and mass incarceration system. Mm. So um, sometimes I say it was despite that, you know, I grew up in New York, very sort of multicultural um, schools and environments, um, but never had directly basically had been confronted with either the systems themselves or um, conversations about them. I I think I kind of skated by in this like kind of quote unquote nice guy area where people are like, oh, even if he's problematic, like, he's a nice guy, you don't have to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so got it,
1: some friends of color.
2: He's got some friends of color. That yeah. means, that means he's not racist. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially, actually, it was after that, it was really when I, the, the sort of the mass incarceration piece is really when I read the new Jim Crow. And then I was like, holy shit, totally unaware. Um, but that is sort of the power of privilege in many ways. Um, is that
1: the image that has 8 million views or something?
2: Uh, I'm not sure how many of you use, but, uh, that was my original like book post. Yeah. was, was the new Jim Crow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That was a big moment. Was, I remember that.
2: That was a big moment in, in all sorts of different ways. Um,
1: what kind of good ways and bad ways?
2: Good ways and bad ways. Okay. What were the good ways? The good ways is that a lot of people saw it. A lot of people saw it. A lot of people, people came up to me and, and said, you know, oh, I bought the book because, you know, you posted it. And to me, that is, uh, that is a great gift. Books have completely changed my life um, and, you know, have, have been the thing that sort of catapulted me into activism and social justice. So to be able to spread that to other folks is like so awesome to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- th- I mean, that's, that's really, the, you know, elevating, elevating the authors and the books that I know that have changed my life is really, um, I consider a part of like how I at least use my, my public platform in terms of um, social justice.
1: For sure. What were the bad ways?
2: The bad ways um, were, uh, you know, I, I think basically what had happened was it definitely put me in the middle of sort of uh, this idea of cancel culture and and all these other sort of um, interesting kind of like
1: who was trying s- to systems can- at work. Oh, sorry, I was going to say you know, who was trying to cancel you.
2: Um, well, if I can rewind for a sec, I'll say even – so basically what happened was I, I started to recognize, like, from my first social media post that, like, it got attention, right? Like, the mm-hmm. f- the moment I understood uh, actually what feminism really meant, I was like, oh, holy shit. Like, yes, I'm a feminist. I post about it. Saw that people were very responsive in a positive way. Saw that it got even some media traction as well. And so I think I started to essentially – um uh, as I was learning, I would, I would kind of also play to the thing that got the media attention because I thought, oh, this is the thing that's going to um, get the word out, essentially. Um, also not recognizing exactly sort of how my privilege fit into that and how um, part of the reason that I was elevated is because of my identities as a white man as well. Um, and also because the way that I was talking about things was in a way that was not necessarily super challenging to the system at times, too. Um, so it started to become like a, a self kind of fulfilling thing where I would uh, try to find the thing also that would resonate, right? That would, re- so I did the free the nipple thing and I, you know, I was thinking specifically about what would, what would be a thing. Did you free your nipple? I freed my nipple. Okay. But then I put.
1: Your nipple's always been free though, hasn't My it? nipple
2: has always been free. Yeah, sure. But um, I, I took, I took uh, Miley Cyrus's and Chrissy Teigen's nipples, nipples that had been banned, and I put them on mine, on my old bodybuilding body, trying to use also my the privilege of the body that I had um, when I was terribly unhealthy <laughs> preparing for bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it blew up, right? Um, and essentially, it became this sort of self-reinforcing thing where I would do things that were not necessarily the deepest kind of level of engagement, um, but then publications, certain publications would praise me, and then that would also open me up for more sort of Sometimes the headlines, you know, like they just, they didn't set me up well.
1: You feel like they were, they accused you of virtue signaling?
2: Yeah. Or basically it became about like, oh, Matt McGorry is, I feel so fucking weird even saying this. I'm not going to, so maybe I'm not going to say it, but really putting me up on a pedestal in a certain way. Can you say it? And if you hate it afterwards, I promise I'll take it out. Promise. I promise. Um, I'm not as
1: much of an asshole as I look. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, just anything about me being like, you know, the best, whatever, you know, ally, best ally, best, you know, guy. Any any of these things that really they're part of what I admire about how you user platform too is you 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 talk about. Um, That it's a journey, right? And that you Mm -hmm. are, and we have to recognize that we will continue to fuck up in our life. Like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And so being, what I needed, what I really needed was the awareness of how, regardless of my intentions, it was elevating me and I was taking up space without realizing it. Yeah. Um, And then the truth is, the deeper that I talk about the issues, the less that, like, the typical mainstream liberal press actually wants to cover them. Right, so if I'm talking about how I'm insecure about my body, they're like, "Oh, yay, thank you." If I'm talking about fat liberation and the intersection of of how capitalism uh, perpetuates it, it's like, "Oh, it's, <laughs> it's good," you know. And <laughs> well, then, <laughs>
1: advertisers aren't going to love that. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. you know.
2: So, and that's the thing is like, actually, now that I feel like I'm doing the realist work that I've ever been doing, there's less, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, but I just I I have to recognize that difference, and and I think when I was playing into that it was playing away from even like sort of the deeper conversation too. For
1: sure, for sure. I am, when it comes to taking up space, like I I frequently ask to have uh, different nationalities or people with different disabilities or people of different sizes on the covers with me. And they're like, oh, sorry, we can't do that. So it's either you don't do it or you do it on your own. And so the conundrum there is, do I walk away with uh, the full integrity, but then the conversation never gets had? Or do I just have to do that that taking up of space in order to bring the conversation into the magazine absolutely so it's a constant battle how do you how do you avoid taking up space
2: um it's interesting you know I think as a response to all that all that had happened um, and then basically it, it, it got to the point where it's like if I was in a photo of like a bunch of women and I was in the middle like people would just be like oh of course he's in the middle of the photo yeah. and, and then <laughs> and, and then and then it really it it, it started to affect me. Um, it, yeah. And, and emotionally, emotionally, yeah. And for a long time, it was about really amplification is an is an important uh, is an important part of allyship. And so for me, under like being able signal to- signal boosting, signal boosting, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, virtue signaling. Uh, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> uh, you know, really being able to like elevate the folks whose ideas have impacted me. You know, and so you know the, the ideas I'm expressing they've they've come they've been shaped by you know, primarily women of color and black women, um, women, folks like bell hooks, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and
1: Roxane Gay and
2: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Adrian Brown. Um, so many amazing folks. And so, so part of it is, is elevating at least in the platform in that way. Um, and then really actually I started showing up in person and organizing because basically I I hit a point where I was like, I don't know what I can even talk about on social media. And that was sort of the, the primary way of my making sort of waves at that point.
1: Well, suddenly when you become an inflammatory person, everything you say uh, is because people at home, they don't know you, they've never met you. Mm -hmm. And so they are projecting onto you their most, sometimes their most sinister Mm -hmm. uh, inflection, Mm -hmm, I guess, mm -hmm. as to what your tone is, what your motivation is. And so it becomes like a funny meme culture almost to rip you down.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it just continues and continues. Yeah. Um,
1: I got called the Rachel Doziel of oh, the fat community, which oh I God. thought was fucking hilarious. <laughs> <That> is- <laughs> um, and people for a while started to think that I just so desperately wanted to be, I was trying to act like I was a fat woman and that was never what wow. I was doing. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the way that the internet can can you know run away with itself, right. which you just can't take seriously. If you are an activist, it just has to not be about you. And I guess that's probably the journey you've been through, mm-hmm. which is taking the ego battering of of being like included included pulled mm-hmm. back in and then thrown out and mm-hmm. told no fuck you yeah. we don't trust your motivation um we're going to punish you now for any mistake that you make because yep. uh, you've dared stick your neck out now we're going to chop your head off yeah um and so now where are you with it have you found more peace
2: oh much more peace yeah um uh, so essentially that point i, I basically i I had to pull back. And so I started just showing up to, I showed up to black lives matter, Los Angeles protests. And they also directed me to a group called white people for black lives Mm -hmm. in LA. That is like, does incredible work. Um, And they're part of showing up for racial justice, which is the national chapter. And so for I was really in community for the first time. Right. And as, as, quote unquote, celebrities, you understand that like having people in your life who can like tell you when you're wrong and like call you on your shit, like the more famous you are, the less that happens. Yeah. And, and that is actually detrimental to, to us and, and, and yeah, exactly. And to the folks that we're attempting to be in allyship with and solidarity with. Um, so showing up in those spaces and actually sort of, and being, working and organizing actually gave me a very different perspective mm. where I could even actually have these conversations with other white folks who could actually explain to me the tropes that I was falling into, right. Right. Without even realizing it. Um, and then from there actually a big part for me has been sort of rebuilding this thing rather than, uh, I think for so long that fear and that perfectionism, that shame and knowing, you know, this sort of lifetime of, uh, doing harm, you know, as a man, as a white person, um, and only having been an activist. And um,
1: just benefiting from a system
2: exactly. of racism. Yeah. Yeah, and to make, to heal, to be able to heal parts of that so that I actually can step into my power and show up as a f- full human being rather than consistently being like, oh, and just always erring on the side of, like, shrinking myself.
1: And tiptoeing and therefore not being effective.
2: Exactly. Right. Um, uh, You know, that has been a big part of my sort of personal journey in the last... Year and a half, and, and and a big part of that has been um, the coaching that I get to do with my mentor J. Love Calderon, who I formed um, Inspire Justice this company with, and 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 really tapping into sort of those deeper kind of um, those elements of shame and the core limiting beliefs, and and actually working to shift that um, rather than just being like, well, it's good enough that I'm doing the work, right? To actually say. This has to also – the idea of mutual liberation is it is also about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually do have to be uh, guiding my activism based on um the needs and solidarity of, like, folks of color and the people that I'm um, seeking to be in allyship with. But at the end of the day, actually, I do need to, like, deciding that it doesn't matter if I'm happy or not or that the more miserable I make myself, the better mm-hmm. Um, was an idea that was, like, forcing me to a corner that felt like basically – I was unsure if I would ever be able to continue to be an actor, essentially, yeah. um, to be in integrity with myself, because as you know, this industry is incredibly toxic.
1: Oh, yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Filthy. Dripping mm. with oh, toxicity. Sorry. Dripping is a... Gra- you went too far. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm um, My shame is... Uh, no, no, I completely agree. Uh, so something that I like uh, about your activism in particular is that you spend a lot of time Uh, specifically talking to white people about what white people can do better. And I feel like that is truly the greatest allyship, is not just to tell brown people how much you as one singular white person knows, uh, or a straight person, or a cis, or uh, a male. It's the fact that you are talking to your own, and it's the thing that I most try to encourage other people to do Mm -hmm. when they're like, you know, how do I get into activism? Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't have to be a loud social media nut job like me. Mm -hmm. You can also just... (laughs) Do the micro activism, which is so effective because it does bleed out, it does change people's minds. To talk to your own about what's going on, so you uh, you talk a lot to white people about white supremacy, mm-hmm. about the history of it, about the impact you're having on other people. Do you ever get uh, called out by white people who um, don't want to hear it?
2: Um, online, in person. Online. <clears throat> um. Sometimes. I mean, I I think I'm I'm at the point now where most white folks who follow you. Who follow me are, are are at the very least not like identified as people who um <clears throat> maybe voted for this this current president. Um,
1: right.
2: <laughs> but, you know, I think so I think a lot of times what it is <clears throat> more so is is white folks thinking that my message is not applying to them. Mm. Um so thinking that we're like quote unquote on the same side. So a well, conversation
1: the, I'm a good guy. I'm exactly. a nice guy. Exactly. I've I i do not need to learn this from you because right. I'm already, you know.
2: Exactly. So for example, a conversation I had over the holidays with um with a, a family friend who's a sort of middle-aged white woman. I noticed that there's this like this idea around this pre- the president that people are just so angry. It almost becomes like a competing victimization of like how angry can we be? Right. Like I I broke I broke uh, a molar because I'm so angry when I was sleeping and I just, and I'm just so shocked. Like, how could this happen? And, and I really. Angry
1: about what?
2: Um, oh, about the, uh, the state of the, the union, the state of the world. Oh, sure, oh sure, about sure. the president. Yeah. Sure, sure. About, about the president specifically.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and in my mind, I, and I, and I, not in my mind, <laughs> I came from my mind, but I started to really push that conversation of like, we, we can't, like, I, this conversation doesn't actually interest me. Right, like this conversation is like we're stuck in this thing um, of this anger and this and this shock, and actually watching the news the way that this person does and the way that I know some other folks do, that is literally about like trying to keep vigilant about what's happening without actually being necessarily engaged or understanding how our own whiteness um, plays into and and is a part of the same whiteness that got <laughs> uh, I wish I didn't say his name um, that this guy got got him elected. Like, to me, that's, again, it's it's sort of, it's it's creating a binary. It's saying, like, this person is racist. And yes, I agree, he's a terrible, terrible person. But if we're not also as white people understanding how we are benefit from the same systems...
1: Can ha- you break that down mm-hmm. for people who don't know? How yeah. do white people benefit from the systems?
2: Sure, yeah. Um, so this, you know, these systems of uh, white supremacy, some folks call them systemic racism. I think the term white supremacy... Um, you know, oftentimes when we hear the words white supremacy, we're thinking uh, okay, okay, white supremacists. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but actually what we're talking about is the system in which whiteness is valued above all else. Um, and that takes place in every aspect of our life. Um, and it disproportionately harms people of color. And it also harms white folks as well. Um, and most the same way that patriarchy, you know, uh, male domination primarily harms women, femmes, and gender nonconforming people, but it actually is very harmful to men as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this takes place everywhere, right? Like no matter how quote unquote good of an activist or an ally I try to be, I will always benefit from my white privilege, even as I am being an activist, right? This is what we were talking about before, like being elevated in certain ways or in conversations around fat liberation, even understanding that my body is still, the size of my body is still very privileged um, in the space of fat activism um, is something that I have to understand because also, again, just by doing what I want to do that I can end up taking up more space actually than I realize and co-opting and becoming the face of a movement that is actually not my movement. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, what I realized was it's, it was not my place to be the face of feminism, but it was my uh, place to be, try and be the face of or vocal voice in um, male anti sexism, right? Or right. or yeah. men as feminists, right? Not my not my place to be uh, the face of Black Lives Matter, but is my place to be, you know, um, white
1: people for Black Lives, <clears throat>
2: exactly, yeah. And that's a very distinct different role, right? Like when you're advocating for for yourself and folks that are directly targeted by the systems of oppression, um, it's a very different role than when you are acting in allyship. And so that that is where that that kind of conversation of white supremacy comes in. And so if we're, for example, so many white folks were shocked when this guy was elected president. Um, But folks, many folks of color were like, no, we've been telling you this country is racist as fuck. And you kept saying that we had a black president so that it was all over. And the reason that we actually got someone as bad as we did is because the issues have continued to get worse. um, Primarily because as white folks, we've been, we've been comfortable. We've been, we've, we've, it's been good enough for that. In our
1: echo chamber.
2: Exactly. And that is where we have to have those conversations. And, and like you said, the, The important work and sometimes the more difficult work is not just in, and I have had these conversations very recently, actually, with some friends who I've been having these conversations with for many years, but I realized the framing needs to shift, right? The framing can just be about how do I understand these issues better? It's about how do I be a better ally? And one of my friends is like, well, I like to think that, you know, my, my, my mother and my sister and folks think that I'm a good feminist. I'm like, okay, but what are the conversations you're having with other men in your life? Right it's easy to have the conversation with someone who already is agreeing with you and is going to give you um, those sorts of those affirmations for doing that work. But the real work is actually, first of all, interpersonally, right? Like in ourselves, like unlearning these, the ways of being um, that we don't even necessarily uh, easily understand and then really bring that conversation to other spaces and not just with folks who are like across the political spectrum like who voted for this president but even with your other sort of liberal kind of friends mm-hmm. right and really challenging that when it's only guys and being the one who's about to, who's going to bring up feminism when it's only men there
1: you know? agreed all right we're going to talk about liberals and how problematic they can be Let's do in it. a minute Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp,
0: H-E-L-P.com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation and you were like, I'm serious.
2: If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, don't worry about it. I won't forget.
0: (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service.
1: And we're back. <laughs> um, so, okay, I want to talk to you about liberals being a bit of an issue mm-hmm. sometimes, because as one... I recognise the problems amongst my own. That there is still a lot of ableism, a lot of racism, a lot of colorism, a lot of homophobia, a lot of transphobia uh, amongst liberals. Um, do you find this in your work? And do you find that you have to actually spend a lot more time than expected uh, actually educating your own?
2: Yeah, uh, I do. I do find this now. I'm uh, personally, I, I don't identify as a liberal. Um, oh right,
1: what do you identify as? May I ask?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a. Con- there, it seems like there's no perfect definition, but uh, a leftist, I think, is right. is what I would sort of say. I mean, I know there's obviously all different ways of defining. I I think a lot of folks tend to define liberal as sort of anything left of center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and yeah, and I, I think that from there was um oh, I'm trying to remember the the book now um it was called Unapologetic um. I don't want to reference it if I can't fully remember. But this is talking about this idea of, like, um, that liberalism at times can mean saying we believe in things but without actually, like, doing anything about them. Right. Right. And I think that we we tend to want to hang our hats, like, on the ideas that we have um, rather than, like, sort of the the conviction Action. that we have. Exactly. Sure. Um, so that is kind of what I see as the— the, the, the main part of the issue and in the conversations I'm having, it, it did surprise me a lot in the beginning and now it, it doesn't really anymore. Um, but again, wanting to see things as a binary, wanting to say, Oh, this person is a racist or this person is a sexist or the, you know, um, rather than actually understanding that like what that typically I think serves to do is to distance ourselves from that person
1: and to make, a any conversation around it impossible. Exactly. Which is just stupid. Like, I don't I don't tend to have a sweeping judgment over all people who elected the current president. Yeah. Like, I I do think it is uh, unideal mm-hmm. uh, to vote for someone who allows for children in cages and, mm-hmm. you know, abortion rights being rolled back, mm-hmm. et cetera. But I do also understand that I can't relate to all of their frustrations or all of their experiences, mm-hmm. and I'm never going to if I just shut them out altogether. Right. That's provided they don't actively try and abuse other people. Those people I draw the line with, where I'm like, I'm not going to talk to you until you are actually ready to behave like a human being. Right. But generally, I think if someone just doesn't know any better and is open to understanding, they are worth the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that them shitting on liberals or leftists and leftists shitting on them is just never going to get us anywhere. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and I think you know it is white folks particularly responsibility to have those conversations, right? Like this is even something that I've been learning, um, in a, I don't want to diminish it. I don't want to say in a small way, but in a very different way I have, you know, I'm sort of the maximum of privilege in most ways. Um, but having relinquished diet culture like two years ago, Mm -hmm. um, I have gained weight in the way where I identify as chubby. Um, I'm not sure if small fat would actually even be sort of the, um, the word to accurately describe that. Um, but my own sort of lifelong uh, experiences and trauma, um, and what I'm now experiencing in my body, um, even especially in our very oppressive uh, industry in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, means that I'm recognizing that my ability to have these conversations around fat phobia are very different than my ability to have conversations around white supremacy and patriarchy. Um, in the latter, I, I tend not to be personally triggered. Um, in the conversation around fat phobia, I am recognizing that actually, when I have these conversations, I am vying for my own humanity. And that has a different cost and a different toll. But as white folks, uh, you know, for example, or when we're acting in the, al- in the, in the capacity simply of allyship, um, it is important that we actually, right, like as white folks, un- like get out of that binary of like, oh, this person's a racist so that we can have the conversation, right? Because actually, I believe it is healing for us to be able to understand how we p- play a part in these systems. And we have to be able to come to the table and say, no, I understand where you got this idea from
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, because my ideas were based in the same thing because it's true, <laughs>
1: Can you talk to me a bit about your body image journey? Yeah. So when did it start? Uh, when did you first become aware of your body?
2: Mm. I, I, probably, I mean, your
1: body image, obviously.
2: Yeah. Well, I first, uh, you know, obviously there's the different sort of points in that journey, but I, I first became aware of, I think, shame in my body probably around 14, maybe. Eh, no, actually, probably earlier than that. Um, I was a kind of chubby kid growing up. Um and I'm a very sensitive person, and so the um, the bullying, you know, which is so normalized but is still very traumatic for most of us, um, started very young, mm-hmm. um, and continued for a long time um, until I started seeing a personal trainer when I was 14.
1: You started seeing a personal trainer at 14. I did. Wow. I
2: did. Um, and, and then I saw how my social status and social power changed when my body changed. And so obviously that was a fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, the typical kind of idea is that um, that's why it's so great, right? Like it, it can change your life. Um, as that's opposed- the
1: slogan of the biggest loser, isn't it? Yes, it
2: really I fucking is. hate
1: that show. I know. Fuck that show. Fucking fucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so wait, so you, uh, okay, so you got a personal trainer. You noticed you were getting more attention from when it comes to sex, vibes, Um not actual sex, but I mean, people that you are attracted to maybe were more attracted to you now. You were getting invited to more parties.
2: Absolutely all of it, right? Um, my, my friend uh, Jesse Nealon pointed out also as a man that having a traditionally acceptable body, part of the power that it grants you with other men is that it is assumed that you have access to women's bodies who are closer to that ideal of privilege as well.
1: Wow. Right? Did not know that.
2: Yeah. So essentially, if I look... "Quote unquote lean and muscular," then I have access to the bodies of women who are the most popular, the most attractive women, and that also elevates my status even among men.
1: So what? They can have your leftovers. They can. Have is leftovers. that what it is? <laughs> like vultures? <laughs> right. God
2: knows I was not eating them all, so um, <laughs> that was a that was a joke about dieting. I
1: get it. I understand. I just uh, want um, to be clear. Okay. <laughs> um, no. um, okay. So were you also di- you weren't just working out? You were also dieting?
2: Uh, yeah, I I. I believe um, that at some point I probably would have had the diagnosis of uh, orthorexia. I'm not entirely sure. I remember when I was- It's
1: looking, a fair food. Uh, Is that fair food? Was it?
2: It's essentially this, it's a, it's a quote unquote health-based um, idea. It's a health-based quote unquote um, like eating disorder. Right. right. Body image disorder. So for me, like, so there's can be an obsession around organic, for example, or an obsession around, quote unquote, clean eating that is not Health. necessarily explicitly about diet, yeah. but is obsessive in ways that is really detrimental. So, for example, when I was looking at colleges, I remember thinking, I can't, I don't know if I can go to this college because I, there's not like uh, access to like an organic food store right here. Um, and, and, and going into Whole Foods and reading the nutrition labels for two hours, you know. Um, and then, so essentially, you know, obviously I, you know, I became a competitive power lifter. Bodybuilding was like the peak of, uh, like the terrible things I did to my body and the deprivation and also the peak of, of course, as you probably know too, um, the acclaim for what I was putting myself through, right? Like this idea of, uh, the discipline that I, that I had and how quote unquote good I was. Versus um,
1: lazy when you were fat or, exactly. or, uh, sort of uncaring about your appearance. Exactly self-esteem. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and this, and then of course I, I, this became used as part of the press for me, even when I became, you know, when I started being on Orange is Black, it was like the talk about me as the old bodybuilder and I would joke about, oh yeah, it was the most miserable experience of my life, but we we're still normalizing this idea that like, wow, what, how impressive that you just, and my um, body was basically shutting down. Um, in what way? Um, Let's see. So many ways. I mean, I couldn't stay warm, you know, and also, Content warning for folks who, you know, have dealt with eating disorders and and whatnot. But, um, you know, like my body couldn't stay warm. Um, like I was constantly obsessing about food, looking up food online, and all these different things. Um, like literally bodily functions of mine were like shutting down. Got it. Um, and uh, and then after that, of course, you know, you binge and 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 you think that that's like you know, after everyone has praised you for all this for all this discipline, and then you simply can't control yourself because physiologically your body is doing the right thing by trying to return you to homeostasis
1: were you binging and starving around the same time as in like so you would train 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 starve 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 and then binge uh,
2: no I mean essentially it was the basically for the bodybuilding preparation it was four months of measuring weighing uh, every piece of food that went in my mouth mm-hmm. um, and then I basically had two meals that were planned where I could essentially go off plan for a limited ah, amount of time cheat meal exactly Ugh. And then so after that, I decided that, that I was going to give up comp- competing and really pursue acting um, because of the amount of time and energy in, that it like took up in my life. I realized that this cannot happen simultaneously. Not,
1: surely I could make more money for this much stress. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I used to have some uh, incredible binges. Mm. uh yeah that was a i I was a definite a binge starver from the age of about 11 onwards because Mm. i weaponized food so much against myself where i was like food is love food is comfort food Mm. is rebellion against my family Mm. food is it's just it was anything but fuel yeah and so i would starve 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 and then eventually i would crack because i was a kid and i was a human and i was growing right and i would uh just just tear through and um but like inhuman amount of calories and and to the point where i would way through to my 20s while i was famous and everything i would eat to the point where i had to sit on all fours Mm -hmm. because that was the only way i could physically breathe Mm -hmm. because my stomach was so like had expanded so much in my skinny little body that it was pressing against my windpipe yeah and so i would have to sometimes skype my boyfriend at the time Mm. on all fours covered in pancake batter yeah and, you know, but again, because I was slender and I looked, you know, what society deemed to be good people would just think my binges were funny exactly Uh, and you know also a lot of them were private Mm -hmm. as we all do Mm -hmm. Um, but when I do it they would be like god you're so crazy you eat so much and that was the weirdest fucking brag of the 90s and the noughties was the fact that the more you could eat and the slimmer you are you are somehow superior to all other people and I totally fucking bought into that and everyone around me did all the famous women I knew they would all order like three dinners did you ever see this you'd see very thin actresses who would order like three massive plates of food Mm. and to be like God, I'm such a pig, yeah. and then just have one bite of each plate, and then keep being saying to everyone else, "Hey, you should try this. You mm-hmm. should try this." That so the food disappears. Yeah, to it's like it's it's very theatrical, mm. and I would totally participate in that sort of culture. Totally, no one ever called me out on the fact that are you okay? No. Did they with you or they just congratulated you ready no, for your body? No, they just
2: congratulated me. I mean, this is this is what the fitness industry is built on. And, and again, it gave me access to being in that body as a personal trainer. You know, I was already writing for, for fitness magazines and, and stuff, but it gave me like a different layer of like essentially street cred, right? Where I could do this to my body and it elevated me socially again. Like, so it, it makes perfect sense why we want to do this, right? Um, and then we do get stuck in these, it seems like uh, these self-deprecating jokes that we think are like, Ways that, you know, I see all the time now and people after the holidays are like, oh, I'm so fat today, you know, it's mm-hmm. like these things are, as I coined the term that I thought was funny at the time, but is actually fucked up, like of being blackout full, basically, because, uh, right, because of yeah. binges, you know, and at the time. that's so hyper normalized. Exactly. It's so hyper normalized. Um, and then essentially trying to be an actor and to To cut a lot of it out of out of it. um about two years ago, I stopped dieting entirely um, and using more of a health at every size. And before you do that, though, approach. can I just yeah. ask,
1: sorry. When you were on, I mean, you were definitely an immediate sex symbol when you mm-hmm, stepped mm-hmm. onto the screen in Orange is the New Black. Did that, uh, as someone who themselves has received attention for the way that I look in my career, uh, especially as Tahani, mm-hmm. uh, where she's considered the sort of, this, the the one that everyone finds attractive. Right. It massively triggered me mm-hmm. and made me uh, very afraid of letting people down for exactly. my appearance. Did yep. that happen with you?
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean... Just for people to know what went into those also uh, experiences, too, is, you know, every time I was going to be shirtless on camera, I would um, crash diet for two weeks and severely dehydrate myself Um, and uh, basically- Tread. Time it all out. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and that was terrible. And it put strain on my relationship at the time. You know, my libido just like disappeared. I was irritable.
1: That's um, the, that's the, oh, I'm so glad you brought that mm, up. It's something that I'd need to talk about mm, more, but it's it's amazing how, like, the more, the harder we try to fit into mm-hmm. uh, society's idea of, like, what will make more people want to have sex with us, the less we can't have the energy exactly. to have sex. My estrogen levels plummeted. I did not shag, I don't think I orgasmed between the age of 24 and 27 could mm, I not have the energy. That's I was like, it seemed like a lot of work. That's Frankly, real. I was like, I don't have, oh, God, I can't I don't have it in me. Yeah. I don't, it was a lot for my heart to go through you don't have any any libido no. i i no one tells you this
2: no no one tells you this and so it's,
1: it's, it's almost worse because yeah. now more people want to have sex with you you can't be <laughs> fucked uh it's just uh bizarre so it's thank you for being open about that yeah that it was affecting your libido no one thinks about this we don't Absolutely. talk about it
2: and that's yeah i mean it, th- during the bodybuilding, the most the, obviously the more deprivation the worse that is right mm-hmm. um like actually yeah um and at that point, you know, you're, so basically doing the show and then, and then doing this whole process and stuff. And then I went into ADR, which for folks that don't know, it's like when you do sound after you shoot the scene, you're basically trying to layer sound in, in case, you know, an editing process. So I got to see the first glimpse of it and I saw myself shirtless and I thought, wow, I, I fucked up this opportunity. Like I did not do what I should have done. Um, and and, and get as lean as basically I should have been. And then, of course, the show came out and pretty much no one, except for the guy who owned the gym, who'd known me since I was 14, um, no one else had said – no one else said anything negative about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that – What course, did he say? He said to me – he was like, if you really want to get lean next time, you should come see me. Um, and um, –
1: can I call him a prick?
2: You can absolutely call him a what prick. prick. Thank you. <laughs> you can actually call him a prick. You can absolutely call him a prick. Okay. Um, but it, right because it's so interesting because it's like that that is like the far end of it. But then in all the rest is just everyone else who understands what I went through and what I put myself through and mm-hmm. just praises it. Right. Which is all part of upholding that. Um, and so, you know, I, I continue to do that again. And I know I feel like most actors that I know do some version of that actually. Um, and I think as men sort of also too, like the way that like this idea of patriarchy kind of like overlaps with that is that, uh, it's, it's not that bad. Like they're just doing, they're just doing their thing. You know, like this is just like, it's part
1: w- of the job, isn't it? Exactly. It's Women part. do it for every single photo shoot of for course. every event. I know some of the most famous actresses in the world have, uh, been telling me recently because when I see them at things, they just start confessing, yeah. uh, that they have to lose a certain amount of weight because of samples. The yeah. sample sizes are so small and they will not be made bigger for anyone, no matter mm. how famous you are. So you have to start starving yourself before award season <sighs> so that you'll just be able to wear the clothes or be in the magazines. Because if you can't fit into the samples, you can't get into the magazines or you can't get onto the red carpet. And then you can't get a campaign and exactly. you also don't get much, you don't get much press. And if you don't get much press, you don't get cast in the next film because mm-hmm. that impacts your bankability. It's a fucking loop. Exactly. Hell.
2: It really is. And it
1: is the same. You're right for when, uh, especially when men have topless scenes.
2: Yeah, and obviously the, the impact on women, you know, and femmes is 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 so much is so much more severe. Um, I think the it is
1: changing; it's getting worse for men. I will say it's getting worse. for I men. agree; it is worse for women. But I would say that I think they've literally run out of space on a woman's body yeah. to uh, monetize yep. and to change. I mean, I saw the just last year. Uh, I, I think it was Chris Jenner, someone um, who was promoting uh, earlobe plasty oh, to fix your fucking earlobes. Okay. Like they're going after our earlobes, yep. Matt. Yep. Yeah. That's it. They went after our labias. Right. And now they're coming for our lobes. Oh, no. There's not a piece of a woman's body that you cannot uh, try to change. And really because not. I think there's nowhere else now, like what we're going to do, the inside of our nostrils. Right. Uh, honestly. So I think that's why they've moved in on men is because they are trying to, well, they've run out of space. They've right. run out of real estate. I'm so worried that you it.
2: gave them an idea now that there's going to be teas for the inside of your nostril.
1: Oh, um, now. It's so insane. But yeah. um, there is definitely a giant spark when it comes to how much men are now being body shamed especially with the rise of social media i'm going to talk to you about it mm-hmm. in a minute great
0: want to make mom's day get to your nordstrom rack now and score amazing deals for mother's day which is sunday may 12th find tons of gifts from only 30 at nordstrom rack fragrance jewelry luxury bags activewear beauty and more save on kate spade new york Stuart weitzman and ted baker london
1: So two years ago, you decided to uh, put diet culture in the fuck it bucket. Mm. Uh, was part of that the pressure of social media? Had that been making things worse? Had you just been, were you at a, like a crescendo of um, just hell?
2: Um, you know, it was, my my hell definitely peaked around the bodybuilding um, stuff. And, you know, for a long time, I thought that, oh, the, the most that you can do is like talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um And so for me, actually, it it was really about um, when I started to read, for example, this book, Health at Every Size by Dr. Linda Bacon, um, I started to really understand how deep my internalized fat phobia went um, and, and also to understand fat phobia as a system of oppression as well. Um, not just something that exists sort of separately from uh, from everything else in terms of just like insecurity, but like the the sort of the political nature of that insecurity, you know the the source of it and how it permeates basically all areas of how we think about food. Um,
1: would you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so for example, fat phobia, the hatred of fat people or fat um, obviously it impacts uh, most mostly or most um, horrendously, uh, the folks in larger bodies, but even for thin people, um, very often the fear of getting fat is so great that it can be, you know, life-destroying as you know, as we were talking about with, um, so many actresses, even who are at the, almost at the very peak of privilege, you know, in terms of their bodies, um, in terms of how they're viewed and positioned socially. So, um, you know, everything from moralizing about foods when we talk about, oh, like, oh, you're so bad or, You know, oh, you're being so good today. Or, you know, it's even when you sort of uh, reading this other book called uh, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings about the the racial origins of fat phobia has been so interesting. Mm. Um, The origins being in racism, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, and also um, in Protestantism. And this language of like good and bad and moralizing around food, you still see it. You see like.
1: Is that because uh, the bodies of black people were more curvaceous naturally than the bodies of the white women, I imagine more so with the women. Yeah, es- Is that where some of that
2: essentially comes the, from? Yeah, essentially the body, the, the slave trade, um, at, at first, when it, before it blew up, um, and particularly before it was in America, it became seen even a little while as it was a fetishized thing that was seen as attractive in a, in a fetishized way um, in some points. Um, but essentially, uh, when more uh, enslaved African folks um, began to be uh, a part of the countries where that was happening, um it began to be associated with um all the other sort of racial connotations uh, or racial um, biases and and racist assumptions about black folks, right that they were greedy or that they were uh, lacked willpower, all Lazy, these ideas, yeah. yeah, all these ideas that were based in race science at the time. um and so, in that, part of it, it became a class, also a class uh, demarcator as well, to be able to be as far away from that um, meant to be uh, to be depriving oneself, right? This asceticism um, that is baked into, like, Protestantism um, and this idea of, like, saviorism, you know, the more that we can sort of deprive ourselves is seen as a moral thing. Um, and we still see that, right? If you look at— uh, Jesus. Jesus.
1: Went on Jesus. a big old diet. Right, didn't
2: he? right. He sure did. He sure did. Well,
1: that's why he's got such sick abs on every cross that you that's see. That's right. That's right. When did, like, well, I never heard about him exercising, doing sit ups in the Bible. You know, he's got fucking insane abs. He does. He's We're, like Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Right.
2: We're going to cut to like the 2025 version of him and it's going to be, he's just going to have like vascularity all just down his,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. His
2: abs. It's just going to continue <laughs> with body image over time. That's a really depressing thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: hairless, completely <laughs> exactly, hairless. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. Oh,
1: man. Oh. Um, God. Move on, move on quickly. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, um,
2: we still see this, like even on like our food, you know, like on Lacroix at the bottom, it says zero calories, zero sugar, innocent. It's like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, it's so weird. Oh, yeah. Um, or these foods, they're like, you know, clean eating or good, like, uh, you know, be bad but also be good. You know, it's it's just so weird when you see the connection. You're like, what the fuck is so
1: moralized? It's exactly. weird because where I come from, they give the girls like. Uh, extra ghee mm. to fatten them up because mm. if you're thin, you look poor, mm. and then no one wants to marry you because mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. presume you don't have money for food. Same thing with a lot of my friends who come from certain parts of Africa. Yeah. Their their mothers try to give them chicken fat pills, chicken hormones, mm. uh, in order to fatten them up so yeah. that they'll look more marriable. So it's really, I mean, it, it's so perfectly illustrates how this is not a universal standard. This is not a truth. This is just a, a very segregated part of the West, or certain other cultures, right. I suppose, around the world right. that just choose to find a way to uh, oppress people and also make them feel like shit, so that they'll go out and buy stuff. Right? You know, c- people consume more when they're unhappy.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And and, and the, it seems like the only universal aspect is essentially that you know that there are certain ideals in which people, and particularly women and femmes, need to fit into, mm-hmm. right? And that they they. And then the shame will result in in not measuring up to that. Or even when they do measure up as much as one can, usually there's some sort of shame associated with that as well. Well,
1: yeah, with us, every 10 years, we get a new look. So it's like, first, it was starve yourself until you can only fit into gap kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you're more than a size double zero, then you're a big fat pig. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you had, now you have, be very, very, very skinny everywhere, but have big tits and have a big ass, but no thighs and no upper arms, no wear and have a, a face that is eternally youthful but also very thin at the same time which mm. makes no sense because really <laughs> a chubby face is the one that's going to look younger for longer mm-hmm. that's just That's just science. That's true. What did Coco Chanel say? After the age of 30, you have to choose between your ass and your face. Oh, man. She's like, that's it. Either get chubby and stay youthful or get thin and look old. Right. (laughs) Either way. um, Can't win. Yeah, you can't win. Yeah. Uh, It's so peculiar. So, okay, so two years ago, you decide after all of this reading and realizing that you are imprisoned in diet culture and fat phobia, you make a decision Mm -hmm. overnight, kind of.
2: <clears throat> yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember how quickly it happened, but essentially it was it was a process, right? I never I I didn't quite say I wasn't willing to immediately relinquish Right. Um, you just and,
1: started to toy with the freedom.
2: Exactly. Right. And, and and I think that's the way it goes with all these things, right? Like even, for example, my first time understanding sexism or racism, um, even if I wanted to say, I will never be sexist or racist Stop again. Stop
1: telling women suddenly to <clears throat> get back in the kitchen.
2: <laughs> right, right. That would be a great start. <laughs> sure. Um, and, um, but, but at the end of the day, it's like these things you know it's as you know it's a constant process of unlearning that will that will happen forever yeah so i could there was no switch to flip you know um i could start that process i could be intentional about it um but for me the real sort of the rubber hit the road when <clears throat> in this conversation with myself around okay so am i just am i doing things am i organizing my eating in ways to remain a certain body type and if i'm doing that then i am dieting and that realization was very large for me, <clears throat> because I realized that that did cover still a lot of my. And even as a trainer, look, I never use the word diet, right? Because even and this is the this is the sneaky like way of diet culture, right? Is that this idea that um, like I knew diets don't work. What I consider a diet doesn't work. Crash dieting doesn't work. But if you make it a lifestyle, quote unquote, um, and even obviously now Weight Watchers is using that language too. Wellness
1: Watchers. Exactly. Oh, is mm-hmm. that what they're called? Mm-hmm. Jesus. <clears throat>
2: Lean Jesus, um, <laughs> that that lean
1: you- hairless Jesus. <laughs> no, move on, move on. Okay, okay. okay.
2: Um, that um, that basically this, you know, that even if you're not calling it a diet, if it if you are restricting your eating in order to maintain a certain body, a certain level of leanness, as we called it in the fitness world, um, it is a diet. Um, so slowly, I would release that, and and I basically what I told myself is like, look, I can always go back if I if I. decide to, right. But like, I have to try to be able to sort of understand this. And I also started kind of unnormalizing these, all these different like thought patterns, behaviors, the obsessively checking in the mirror, you know, touching my body to see if I'd lost weight, um, you know, trying to trick myself into not being hungry, all this stuff. Um, I almost think of it like in terms of like an abusive relationship. It's like when you were in that relationship, um, you, it's hard to recognize all the things that are so fucked up, right? That you've normalized, right? Mm-hmm. Like the gas lighting and all this stuff. Um, but after leaving it's and having some distance from it, you know, it is possible to have uh, more perspective often. And so I realized that I had to basically make, you know, make some choices, um, And step back and said that I could always go back into it. And then over time, I kind of kept releasing different layers. And as I educated myself, I'd be able to understand where those things were, um, you know, where my own limitations were, where I was trying to trick myself into um, various different ways of maintaining the body uh, that I thought that I had. And also the thing about intuitive eating and health at every size is it doesn't – it's not really health at every size or intuitive eating if you're saying, I'm going to stop dieting as long as I exist in this Mm -hmm. range, um, I mean, it's still on the process, um, but you're, st- when you're still kind of like having that end goal, rather than saying like, I'm, I'm going to allow myself, my body to be how it is by sure. doing this. Um, we're still actually hedging our bets. And, and so I really, I did that. And, you know, um, you gained weight, I gained weight. Yeah. How I ga- did that
1: feel? Was uh, it scary at first?
2: Terrifying. Yeah, okay. it's terrifying. And, and again, also recognizing that even like the privileges that I have, right, like as a as a famous person, for example, the social positioning of being a famous person um, already gives me a lot of privilege in that way, you know? And, and, um, and so to even imagine doing that without that would be even more scary. Yeah. But do
1: you feel like you lost any of your privilege by getting bigger?
2: Uh, I definitely do. Yeah. Are you getting different roles? Yeah. um,
1: In films? I don't mean physically. Right. Right.
2: (laughs) But yes, I am too. Um, Lovely. Right. Um, Gluten-free ones.
1: I think you look fucking great.
2: Thank you. Honestly. I appreciate that. And
1: I've never liked abs anyway. (laughs) You look brilliant. Thank Um, you. Anyway, go on. What were you going to say?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I had a conversation, so I basically decided to relinquish it and relinquish the control. um, And, um, you know, I had a conversation about eight months ago um, with someone in the industry who basically told me that, you know, my, that I would no longer be able to play leading man roles. Um, Fuck. yeah, which is, um, significant for a number of reasons. One, which like relative, you know, understanding that even where I'm at now, I'm st- I still have so much potty privilege in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, the, the spectrum of what it means to be a fat person. Um, and if I can't even be in like a role or if I'm being told that I can't even be in a role where people believe that I'm like lovable, lovable. Yeah. then of course that, that is why I've internalized this shit and that, and that how profoundly that affects other folks in larger bodies as well.
1: Isn't it amazing when someone fucking goes and confirms your biggest fear that has imprisoned you all this time? Yeah. Um, I gained about 75 pounds, about five stone, um, when I was on the radio mm. and it got massive amounts of press. Mm. I mean, for six months I had paparazzi parked outside my house. It was a whole thing. And they would publish like very fat photographs of me next to very, very thin photographs of me. Uh, cause had been on medication. So it happened very, very quickly. Mm. And, um, What was so upsetting about that was the fact that I was now being bullied and humiliated nationwide for this appearance, which is the exact fear you have as like a teenager. Exactly. It'll be so embarrassing. Everyone will make fun of me. And when it actually happens, you just, this is why I guess you and I now both rally so hard to Mm -hmm. change the culture Mm -hmm. so that that truth no longer exists. Exactly, And so... Well done for not being triggered back into everything from well, hearing that statement, because w- a lot of people might have.
2: Uh, to be honest, um, I was I was actually for sure. three days. Um, that
1: that makes complete sense. Yeah, but all I mean is not jumping straight back exactly. into. You you haven't turned up here today, like you know, skeletal or anything like that. Exactly, I
2: I, I think because I'd had enough distance from it. Basically, uh, I I I I was triggered in a way where I I almost was wanted to. I feel like I wanted to punish in a way where I wanted to say, I'm going to, I'm going to fucking do this and I'm going to show you how miserable it makes me, which is just a, you know,
0: Oh
1: sure. I've done that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Line of,
2: line of rationing, but, but I did it and I was so miserable and I could see, I could finally, because I'd, because I'd released it for so long, I could Mm. see how miserable I was in a way where, you know, my, my spiritual connection that I had felt that I'd really worked hard to develop with the universe was, gone my my energy levels my concentration my ability to have like higher levels of thinking was totally gone because i just immediately started thinking about being hungry again and thinking about not being hungry i mean being our hunger is one of our most primal um signs
1: of vitality signs of
2: vitality internal mechanisms and to deny that and to try to be in touch with my truest self whether it's uh you know sexually or emotionally or spiritually um it doesn't work because we're actually trying to deny one of the most fundamental parts of ourselves. So after about three days of it, I had a call with my coach and she asked me to stop. Um, And I, and I, and I did, and I was glad that she asked me. Um, But even in that, it was, it was this thing where then going to explain it to people, right? Like, um, you know, I, I see this analogy sort of, I think it's useful for me because I my entry point was in other forms of activism, to see analogies with different kinds of oppression, right? So I think of diet culture as like analogous to rape culture, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of like this sort of ever-present like uh, way of viewing women and women's sexuality um, that is uphold, upheld by everything from the smallest sort of microaggression to the larger things. Um, and then obviously in rape culture too, explaining assault, you know, um, particularly as a woman to men, um, obviously one of the main fears and something that comes through very often is that people are either not believed or diminished in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to of course create a one-to-one, but what my experience was is in explaining to people how I was triggered into this and, and, and my being upset from all this stuff was that people would then minimize without even consciously realizing it,
1: especially because you're a man, so especially it's like, like, men don't have body issues. Right.
2: And even if it was the smallest things, right? Because my sort of understanding and analysis of how these systems work and because I was so triggered and because I'm so new in the journey of like, you know, making peace with all this that I'd find myself triggered in other ways again. So whether someone was like, oh, look, I think it's great as, you know, as long as you're healthy and like all these different sort of assumptions. Exactly. These codes that people aren't even realizing or, or like, well, I guess, you know, the person's just expressing how the industry is, right? But like, if you took an analogy with that, in in any other way, and you're like, if you're telling a woman that she, you know, that there's just not that many, you know, leading roles for her, and therefore you can't take her as a client because she's a woman, um, we would understand that, like, yes, it's okay to express the truth, but with that, you also have to express that, like,
1: you want to help change the system. You want to help system. change the system. Uh, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that I have that with uh, agents who, you know, there isn't very much South Asian representation in mm-hmm. Hollywood, and I have agents who see that as a challenge, not uh, a pitfall.
2: Exactly. And not
1: a hurdle. Yeah. Um, so have you had therapy over the last two years? How do you? How does one who wants to step out of this, you know, prison... How does one do that? Do you, do you did you have therapy or coaching or anything like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been in therapy for eighteen years now. Okay, um, which I'm, I consider myself extremely privileged and and lucky to have experienced. Um, I think that is a great step for for many folks in that way. Um, I think. Uh, you know, there are people who do coaching, you know, health at every size coaching, intuitive eating coaching as a way to step out of that is a, is right. a great thing. Um, I think being a part of a community like I Weigh or The Body Is Not an Apology, Son, you're in a yeah. Taylor's community. Um, being a community so you can really sort of have people that are supporting you in that journey, even if it's virtually, right, um, is so important because most of the folks in your life, for most of us, are not necessarily going to understand why. and 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 we need to be able to sort of go and refill and refuel ourselves in terms of um, our reasoning and, and become grounded in sort of the, uh, the truth of what we're doing and reminded of why we're doing it. Um, so I think that sort of community aspect is really important. Um, and for me, it was uh, the coaching um, that I've been doing and continuing to educate myself, right? Like reading these books, like uh, you have the right to main fat by Virgie Tovar, It was amazing. Um, Anti-Diet is a new book that just came out that I love. And just really be able to identify when I'm having these thoughts, okay, how does this fit into the broader narrative?
1: Spotting the inner bully. Mm, Yes. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I'm so happy that you've managed to... To separate yourself from that, or you're on that journey currently, and I'm sure it's it's a continual journey. Absolutely, as someone it is. who's like in recovery for maybe five or six years now, yeah. it still just goes on and on. 100%. To find new ways in. At a, a moment where I couldn't fit into a designer dress at a photo shoot recently, and it wouldn't go up past my knees, and I, uh, for the first time ever, thought. Oh not shame on me, shame on you. Exactly. You got my fucking sizes a month ago. Exactly. Like, why would you order a size zero dress? Yes. Just to make me feel like shit. Mm-hmm. It's very intense. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you would mind telling me what you weigh. And as in an I, I'm going to fucking right, introduce right, it right. again. Basically, we're going to do an I weigh. I'm not going to like, yeah, Matt, can right, you? Um, right, we've got a weighing right. scale here. <laughs> Roll out the yeah. weighing scale, bring the measuring tapes. Um, I was going to ask you what you weigh.
2: Um, I weigh bold compassion for myself and others. I weigh healing myself and others. I weigh fiercely fighting against systems of oppression. And I weigh prioritizing my inner joy and peace.
1: Great. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: This has been so informative and illuminating. It's been really wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I just want to give an extra massive thank you to the people who helped me make this. Sophia Jennings, my producer and researcher. Kimmy Lucas, my producer. Andrew Carson, my editor. James Blake, my boyfriend, who made the beautiful music for this show. And now I'd like to leave you by passing the mic to a member of our community sharing their iWay. way.
0: I weigh my openness and my fucking loud mouth and my love of my sister and I weigh my relationship with my kids and my society as much as I can't stand it half the time and I weigh my rebellious attitude and protesting nature. Thank you for doing this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack, Fragrance